Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Professor Andy Large and Dr Andy Henderson, both from the School of Geography, Politics and Sociology at Newcastle University. Professor Andy Large is a field-based physical geographer with strengths lying in river management, the social and physical effects of climate change, ecosystem services and the SDGs. Dr Andy Henderson is a reader in physical geography with a special interest in quaternary environmental change and the geosciences. Both the Andes are the creators of the UKRI GCRF Living Deltas Hub, which is an organisation of well over 100 international scientists who want to create a sustainable delta system for the 500 million people who live on the 1% of global land cover they represent, and potentially the 1% most at threat from climate change globally. Island states may differ, though. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Andy L, could we start uh, by you giving us an outline of how global the Living Deltas team is? Certainly. Um, just to clarify, GCRF stands for Global Challenges Research Fund. Uh, and the project was funded by uh, UK Research and Innovation. That's the collection of all the research councils in Britain who basically coordinate science and, and, and academic research. Um, and Living Delta is, is one of only 12 such hubs under in existence. Um, the funding call was jointly written between UKRI and UNDP, who are responsible for the, for the SDGs agenda. And so uh, achieving the SDGs better in Delta settings is, is at the heart of the project. We're a truly global organization. We have, we have some 23 institutions from 11 countries, uh, Vietnam, India, Bangladesh, Thailand, Malaysia, the UK, Netherlands, Germany, US and Canada and Australia. So we cover all the time zones globally. Uh, it, we're working in three Delta nations in India, Vietnam and Bangladesh. Uh, we cover what we call four delta social ecological systems, which are the interaction between people and their environments. So we're, we're working on the on the Red River Delta and the v and the Mekong River Delta in Vietnam. We're working on the GBM, the Ganges Brahmaputra Meghna system, which is is the largest composite delta in the world, and that's. Uh, currently politically split between uh, India and Bangladesh. And finally, our research has come from some 20 countries globally. So we, we are a truly global organization. And we feel that that is, is really necessary to achieve some of these global research challenges. Andy H, am I right in saying that uh, Asia has the largest delta plane? And therefore, I imagine within that global reach that um, Andy L was talking about. Um, Asia is your primary focus. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the Amazon would give us a run for our money, but um, certainly in in terms of Asia, this is where most of the major river systems kind of emanate from the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalaya, and this delivers sediment to the coastline, and that that sediment load really helps the the build up of these delta systems, and that's one of the challenges we'll probably discuss later. Um, and that's all tied into the kind of evolution of the Asian monsoon, which helps to erode the, the kind of the Himalayan landscape, um, deliver this sediment, build these deltas over a very long t uh, time period, um, and particularly over the last 10,000 years where um, there's been lots of changes around the coastline and it's just 
just a peculiarity of all of these major river systems that come, I think seven or eight of the largest river systems emanate on the plateau. And at the end of them are major delta systems. So that's one of the reasons why Asia has this kind of huge preponderance of, of delta systems. And who are the most vulnerable um, on those delta systems? And can you explain how uh, people have um, become first adapters to climate change there? Um, everybody's vulnerable on these deltas. For example, one of the countries we work with, Bangladesh, is a delta. And the whole country is a delta. Elsewhere in, in, in the West, West Bengal, uh, for example, this is one state in, in India. Uh, and and, and uh, many other parts of India probably forget that some of their peoples live on deltas. Um, in, in Vietnam, um, the del two deltas are at either end of the country, 1,500 kilometers apart. So a large part of it is, is, is raising awareness of who are the vulnerable people. They are everybody from the highest and most grand policymaker down to the most poor and vulnerable farmer on the delta. Um, and part of our project is to, is to increase the connectivity between these groups, between these sectors of society, so that, that uh, policy that we, we develop will, will benefit the, the most poor and most vulnerable and most marginalized, but will also benefit the policymaker because then people will be prepared to hopefully run with policy, which is designed for more sustainable Delta futures. Uh, in terms of being the first adapters to climate change, the, 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 these people are, are developing already adaptive uh, mechanisms to the change they're already experiencing. Um, the, for example, the, the Bay of Bengal has uh, amongst the highest rates of sea level rise in the world globally at the moment. Um, saline intrusion is a major problem, land use change, um, changes in livelihood due to increased storminess, uh, in, in, uh, alteration of um, rice growth patterns because of saline intrusion, uh, food, food insecurity, all of these issues um, affect people. And, and, and the they are currently um, at the forefront of developing mechanisms to adapt to change that is already happening. So we, we in the rest of the world have much to learn from the people on the, on the Delta countries. And how do you measure um, the change in the Delta systems? You've mentioned sea level rise and saline intrusion. Are they some of the, the indicators? So, I mean, it really depends on what scale you're interested in change. Um, and one of the goals of the Living Deltas Hub is to kind of try and help establish or galvanize um, kind of monitoring programs to to actually track these sorts of changes. Um, you know, some, some, some governments are very good at uh, kind of monitoring their environment and understanding how it changes through time and, and identifying these kind of challenges and problems. Um, but in, in other situations, there isn't actually a, a kind of a developed framework for actually monitoring these things. So even though these deltas face huge challenges, they're actually the, the kind of the scientific basis or the evidence base in which to make policy decisions isn't there. And that's what that's one of the, the big challenges we face in terms of working with our colleagues in, in Delta systems to try and um, figure out ways in which we can um, establish these sorts of kind of monitoring programs. So. When we monitor something, particularly in the environment, we're monitoring it to a baseline. So effectively, some of our efforts are, are establishing kind of the baseline water chemistry to baseline water quality in these systems. And a, a big component of that is salinity and salinity intrusion. So one of the things we're interested in is to see how far that impact of salinity goes um, in inland to in the delta systems. Um, this 
is exacerbated in some systems compared to others. Um, the other big issue is because you know, particularly uh, the you know Mekong Delta is 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 you know colloquially known as the breadbasket of the world because it produces I think it's nearly eighty odd percent of the world's rice. Um, there's a huge pressure there in terms of production, and so lots of uh, you know we have rather than having one or two seasons of rice growing, there's now three seasons of rice growing. So in order to facilitate that, there's lots of nutrients being added, fertilizers added, pesticides being added to these kind of farm systems. Uh, and that has a knock-on impact on things like aquatic ecosystems. Um, there's lots of ponds in these kind of deltaic systems. Um, and so we're having um, knock-on effects from something in terms of uh, kind of agricultural production. Um, the other way we can look at it is rather than looking on the ground and thinking about the monitoring, is looking in terms of Earth observation. So we can use satellite imagery, um, you know, starting from Landsat from the, in the 1970s and 80s all the way up to the modern day where we can use kind of sentinel satellite imagery. And this helps us track change, particularly land use change through time over these delta systems. And obviously what you can imagine is that as populations have expanded, as government's appetites to increase economic prosperity have expanded. Um, this has had knock-on effects in terms of conversion of land that was once potentially natural to um, a heavily farmed landscape. So there, there are a number of ways we can look at it, and it really depends on what sort of time frame. And, and one of the things we are trying to do is to look at a longer time frame to see, can we understand flood history, salinity over time? And one of the ways we can do that is by looking at uh, things like lake sediments or pond sediments and the sediments at the bottom. And we can integrate that with colleagues who are who are interested in the communities and intergenerational histories. So there's a, a program of oral history work where uh, a number of interviews are, are occurring between children, their parents and their grandparents uh, as far back as possible and to try and understand what, you know, how have things changed on the Delta through that kind of, those generations. Um, what pressures have they seen? What challenges have they seen? What has become more of a challenge that wasn't a challenge? And so it's really trying to build up a, a, an idea from many different approaches to understand how things on the deltas have changed over time. I think I know the answer to this question already, um, but talking about those monitoring programs and, and, for example, your oral histories work, do you evenly study all the deltas across India, Vietnam and Bangladesh or... Um, is there a representative issue? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, the aim is to to work across um, all all four or all, all three delta systems for delta SESs. Um, the, there is a representative issue in terms of you know terms of size, in terms of pre-existing resources in, uh, and research programs that already are already there. Um, but each each one of each one of the systems, um, you know, they, they've established monitoring programs. Um, I mean, one of the biggest challenges we face is scale, um, and the Ganges Brahmaputra is uh, Meghna system is 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 massive, and moving across that network of of different kind of uh, creeks, rivers, tributaries is 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 a challenge logistically. Um, whereas in in the Mekong and in the Red River Delta system, because of the infrastructure that's already there. Um, it's much more more easily to, to to move around. So there are there are not, in terms of representability, some of that has actually been defined by what logistically is possible. On the point of granularity, um, 
can we zoom in on Bangladesh for a moment? Because I know a lot of geography teachers and, and students um, study it. Um, and could you explain what the Delta 2100 plan is? Sure. Um, the Delta 2100 plan, in essence, as the name suggests, is a plan that is, is project, projected to run to 2100. Now, that's going to be long after some of the most major changes in, 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 in our climate that we're beginning to anticipate. Um, but it's a long-term view of the Delta. Uh, it's largely infrastructure-driven. It's, it's a central government plan. It appears in five-year iterations. So the hub has a chance to feed into current iterations of that plan. Um, the key aspect, I suppose, is, is, is it, it emphasizes large-scale approaches. Uh, so in, in many cases, it's, it's focused in on um, the effects of uh, embanking parts of the delta and what that means in terms of salinity, intrusion, uh, farm diversification, etc. It's looking at the coastal zone. The interesting thing about GBM delta uh, in, in terms of geography, is it, it's not the same age. It tilts from east, uh, west to east. So the western part in West Bengal is older. It's the more moribund delta, as we call it, whereas the eastern part in Bangladesh is the active grading delta where the coastline is building out and uh, populations are having to adjust to that in terms of the, the rapidly changing environment. So they take a very engineering-dominated view to the delta, in terms of how they look at water movement across their country, as, as we know, the entire country uh, floods to lesser or greater extent during the monsoon, uh, and, and so this is a, a major impact on livelihoods. Uh, and and the, that plan is devised to give some continuity to the approach in terms of how that, that, that approach is dealt with over time. Uh, new approaches are coming to play. The, the, the Delta 2100 plan is now having to sort of take on board the sustainable development goals. All countries have a duty uh, to report their progress on the SDGs on a one to two year basis in terms of what we call voluntary national reviews. So that VNR process feeds into that Delta 2100 plan. And currently, they're, in, they're also de uh, uh, developing uh, a CAP, a climate adaptation plan, again, recognizing that adaptation is at the forefront of their approach. And have you found the same um, outcomes in the other deltas that you study um, along, for example, the Red River or the Mekong River in Vietnam? Yeah, it, it, it's a, it, we, the deltas we've chosen are quite different in character. The, the Red River, for example, is heavily industrialized. Uh, a lot of the issues come, therefore, in terms of water quality. Um, but the Red River, like the Mekong, is heavily dammed. And so major issues are occurring in terms of sediment movement to, to that those two deltas, um, to the point where they're sort of at the upper end of the global scale, whereas many of the world's deltas are sinking up to four times faster than sea level is rising due to sediment starvation and, and compaction of sediment. Um, so this is a big problem in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, the, the Mekong Delta, on the other hand, is rural, as, as Andy said. It's, it's a predominantly rice-growing region, which is now being pressured to move to shrimp production. So that, again, has major implications for the Delta because a lot of farmers are moving to shrimp farming, which um, in, in essence involves digging big ponds on the Delta, maybe up to one to two meters depth, uh, and, and farming shrimp. But that is an issue because that is a major 
change to the delta structure. And if that farming doesn't work out and the farmer then wants to move on to something else, that land is essentially destroyed. Uh, and so what, one, what we were trying to do there, for example, is trying to, to incorporate mangrove restoration with that agricultural practice to make it slightly more sustainable uh, and, to, and to bring in factors like shading for the species in these essentially warm baths on the floodplain. So those are all issues, and then, and then when we move to, you know, probably a thousand kilometres away to the to the to the west to the GVM Delta, again largely rural. Uh, Kolkata is is the biggest city, but that's now um, off the active Delta in, in that sense, and and so the populations are, are very much, you know, at the very marginalised end economically, um, and 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 to a large extent uh, subsistence um, livelihoods take over in these situations where. Population, populations uh, use the forests where they can for fish, for crab collection, for for honey gathering, and that plays a large part in in their in in their communities and, and then in the, in the culture. So again, there's a cultural difference across these deltas. So so we we've picked these four, um, recognizing that they do stretch us as a team in terms of their vast area, but at the same time they provide a rich variety of of land use, of, of land use change, of culture. Uh, and of land use traditions. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing I would add to that is that um, particularly the Mekong is a heavily regulated system and has been for a long time. So there's a series of canals, dikes, and it controls. And the reason they built it is because it controls water level. You know, they recognize if you, if, if you have a, f a floodplain in the delta that, that, that constantly floods, then you can't actually develop it. Um, and so that's one of the early kind of engineering things that went in there is so... In a sense, the delta isn't as natural as it, it, it as it should be because it's being heavily regulated. That regulation isn't there in the sense, you know, there is regulation that goes on on the other delta systems, but but the Mekong in particular is heavily regulated, and that has allowed the development of that uh, kind of rice production um, in that system. Um, so that's one of the, I think, one of the main judges. I mean, one of the other points we really should point out is that um, in terms of these delta systems, deltas are always at the end of a river system that flows into the ocean. Now, depending on what delta we're talking about, um, you know, they can flow through several countries before they get to you. So if we take the Mekong as a, as a classic example, it, it flows through about five other countries before it gets there. So in its natural state, it would just normally flow from, you know, the Himalayas down to, uh, down to the ocean. But, because you have several governments making decisions around water resource use along the way that has impacts on people who live on the delta and they have no control over that. Uh, the Red River is also very similar in terms of uh, that flows out through China. Um, and then in the Ganges Brahmaputra, uh, you know, the, the big the big player there is, 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 is India in some sense because, you know, the Ganges flies, flows from kind of the Western end of the Himalayas, right across the kind of plain in northern India into Calcutta, but it also then carries on into to Bangladesh, and then we have the Padma system that comes down and feeds into the Meghna system in, in Bangladesh as well. So there are a number of decisions about, you know, that you know Delta dwellers are completely helpless or have no control over, and that's kind of one of the one of the big issues is that while they can make all the efforts locally, some of the, some of the impacts that they're feeling are actually not out of their control and. Um, and there's, you know, the, the proposed development of the Faraka Barrage, which, you know, will have a, a massive impact on the amount of sediment being delivered. And ultimately, if we boil it down and we take people away and industry away, you know, rivers 
move sediment from one place to the other and deltas build because of sediment. And if you remove their source of sediment, you can't, you can't replace it. Um, and if you can't replace that sediment, then you start to lose. And that's why lots of these deltas are starting to subside because there isn't any balance in that kind of sedimentary delivery system. I'm going to gently move us towards a positive point, I hope. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. Could you tell us about the vital importance of the Shundaban mangrove forests? Yeah, so the, I mean, the Shundabans are interesting. They're a kind of a, a mangrove forest system that sits within the uh, uh, Ganges Brahmaputra Meghna system. Um, and uh, they provide a, a really important resource for kind of local communities in terms of uh, things like honey collection, um, crab, um, fishing. Um, but there's also, you know, many threats in terms of it's a, a tropical system. It's the home of the Bengal tiger. Um, and there's a number of um, kind of incidences where you have this kind of wildlife people conflict that occur within the Shundabans. Um, it's what is interesting is that on one side of the border, so in Bangladesh, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and has been designated as that. On the other side, in India, it isn't a designated, it's a protected area, but it's not a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site. So there are different levels of protection. And, and if you look at any kind of satellite image of the Shundabans in the, the Ganges Brahmaputra, what you'll see is, um, you know, the, the Bangladesh side is very kind of verdant and, and, and much, much bigger in scale compared to the Indian side. And that's because what happens is that as you get creeping pressure towards deltas, you start to lose, um, you know, those communities that live at the edge start to use it and starts to impact the, the kind of the, the mangrove systems and the Shundaban systems. Um so they're kind of a, a kind of a, a almost biodiversity hotspot. They um, one of the big things that they do, um, and we is kind of being witnessed over the last few years, is that they provide natural protection from cyclones, um, salinity, sea level rise, and if you start to remove that kind of buffer system, you're then starting to expose a lot more people to these uh, kind of extreme events um, that, that you know they they won't have any control of, and so one of the one of the potentially the easiest ways to to defend against something like a cyclone is that is if you build up your kind of buffer of a mangrove forest that helps to dissipate the energy from the cyclone before it meets proper landfall. Um, and so that's one of the kind of aspects of limb deltas is actually focusing on, you know, mangroves. Um, how you know how do we how do we help restore mangrove systems because. Some of the work that's been done has demonstrated that you can't just take any mangrove species and, and plonk it in and just say, well, this is the right sort of environment. It's really heavily dependent on um, sort of tidal environment, the sort of kind of mud that that's in these different systems. And so a lot of work is going on into understanding what species best fits the restoration projects. And across all four of our deltas, so from Vietnam, Red River and Mekong to the Ganges Brahmaputra Magna system, you know, there's there's evidence of people trying to restore mangroves, but there's ev equally evidence of of basically failure in those restoration projects, and it's because they haven't understood the underlying bio geophysical need of the different species in terms of their setting. So it isn't a question of transplanting mangroves from one place to another. It's about understanding the much more local conditions required to establish mangrove forests. In terms of what we are doing in living deltas, we have a, one of our work streams is, is use of what we call mini boys. These are innovative but very cheap monitoring um, tools. They're essentially small little test tubes almost, plastic test tubes 
mounted on fishing tackle but then anchored into the mud substrate and what they do they lie flat on the mud and when the tide comes in these are tidal areas then then the the the, the, the boy basically rises vertically but then it then it moves because it's on this fishing fishing tackle and can go back and forth with the wave movement so we're beginning to understand better the 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 range of conditions at the coastal margin in the littoral zone to to actually understand better those those conditions as andy says traditionally these approaches to plants and plug back in mangrove saplings into the mud just doesn't work so we need to understand the environment much better and 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 this restoration is 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 vital as andy says they're a bio shield for communities in terms of exacerbating uh, exacerbated climate change but even on a global basis, they're, they're, on a wider global basis, they're, they're incredibly important. They sequester or take up up to three to five times more carbon than tropical rainforest does because of the, the unique nature of the rooting nature of the of the plants and their their relationship with the with the substrate and the the particular carbon cycle that goes on internally within the within the ecosystem. It sounds incredibly complicated with everything we've talked about, the scale, the multi-country governance from upper course to lower course, the different levels of protection between Bangladesh and India, and as you said, how unique mangrove forests are. Um, could we finally bring it back to the UK? Um, and could you um, explain what collaboration is underway between the Living Deltas Hub and Anglican Water with the Future Fens Initiative? Sure. Yeah, this this is an initiative that came about uh, as part of the recent COP26 conference, the, the climate change conference that was held in Glasgow uh, in the first half of November. Uh, we were approached before that by Anglian Water, who have, as you've mentioned, this, this initiative called the Future Fens Initiative. Uh, and the they recognize that both of us have an interest in raising the voices of inhabitants of low-lying landscapes. In Britain, the fens are our lowest-lying landscapes, um, among them, uh, and, uh, but particularly at risk to, to climate change. If, if we get sea level rise affecting the North Sea, then large swathes of that landscape will, uh, again, experience the similar issues that we're facing in the delta, saline intrusion, uh, widespread flooding, um, loss of agricultural productivity, all of those things that we probably like to ignore, but which potentially are, are facing us. And, and re quite recently, the head of the Environment Agency, you know, insisted on a report coming out from the EA uh, having the title Adapt or Die, which raised quite a few hackles in the media and in government thinking, well, that's a very sort of negative message. But it, it's recognizing that climate change affects everybody, that we're not immune in the UK, that we might be an island state with high, high ground, uh, but potentially we're, we're just as vulnerable. And so that we need to raise the voices of those inhabitants of those low-lying landscapes. We need to understand the life stories those people, those dwellers can tell. We need to understand the life experiences they have and how local culture and what we call indigenous knowledge, both in the UK and elsewhere, can help in adapting to climate change and the threats that, that climate change brings. So at one stroke, this gives us an, an opportunity to, to avoid bad old habits of passing knowledge in theory from the global north to the global south in terms of our academic knowledge and that knowledge transfer, but to recognize the key importance of south to north knowledge exchange. 
as well as South-South. We're working a lot in the Deltas project on South-South knowledge exchange between the GBM, Red River and, and the Mekong. Um, but really, we need to understand and learn from people who are at the front line of climate change adaptation, who have lots to tell us already about the lessons we need to learn. And so this project is, is, is trying to raise the voice of Delta dwellers. We jointly plan to join, hopefully, the race to resilience. This is the UN-backed global campaign to catalyze what they call a step change in global ambition for climate resilience. And the aim of that program is to put people and nature first in to pursue a resilient world where we don't just survive climate shocks and extremes, but as the as the program says, we thrive despite them. Now, that might be a bit of a sort of, you know, rosy-eyed view of things, but let's hope for the best. And so therefore that, that program aims for 2030 to catalyze wide action that builds the resilience of 4 billion people worldwide from vulnerable groups and communities to climate risk. So this is part of a, a suite of different approaches to that. So, so that's, that's the longer term aim of that. And, and beyond that, we, we have the aim to sort of talk to other deltas worldwide as well. We can think of, uh, for example, the Mississippi. It's losing about a football field of, of land every single day due to similar issues in terms of the weirs and, and blockages further back up that great river. Uh, but the people at risk are the people, as Andy has said, who are at the end, at the, at, the, at the margins. And these are the people we want to work with. I've learned so much during this podcast. Um, Andy H, Andy L, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Harry. Thank you, Harry. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.